All right. Well, I got to tell you, I feel like I should be leaning this way a little bit. Everybody seems to be gravitating towards this side. Did something happen over here this morning I need to know about? Do you, is there anything to report? Is the air better over here? <laughs> okay, now I get it. Nick, is this a little hot or I'm okay? We're good, okay. Well, it's, listen, I don't want y'all to get up and look, but you wouldn't believe how full this balcony is. Don't get up and look. Oh, you up front here. Oh, I caught you. Don't look. That's a lot of people up there. I mean, the majority of them with two family, three families, but still. Oh, man, this is awesome. Good turnout. Folks, turn to Ruth, chapter 3. We are continuing a sermon that I started last week honoring our mothers for Mother's Day. It's a story of commitment, loyalty, and selfless devotion, part two. Part two. And I got to tell you, um, I revamped what I had written because God got a hold of me this week, and that's kind of what this sermon's about. And I loved how this turned out. We're going to tell the story, but there's so much to this story uh, at the end is where I kind of want to bring it all together. So just to recap, at the end of chapter 2, Naomi discovers through her conversation with Ruth that it is Boaz, a relative of hers, who was showing this great kindness to her daughter-in-law. She was allowed to, to glean among the sheaves, even getting extra food. He was providing. He was showing a great kindness as she was taking care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And this great kindness stemmed from God, of course, but they were seeing it in the man of Boaz. So look at Ruth chapter 3. We're going to read these first five verses. Ruth 3, 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking." But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Okay, let's talk about this. Naomi says to Ruth, I want rest for you. I want things to be well with you. Naomi wanted to find rest and wellness for Ruth in marriage. That's what she's alluding to here, marriage. Meaning she wanted Ruth to find marriage for Boaz as a source of peace and as a source for refreshment in her life. She desired a secure future for Ruth. We desire that for our own children, don't we? Of course. We want a secure future. So in Naomi's, Naomi's instructions here to Ruth, she advises her to lie down next to him and uncover his feet, and then he will tell you what to do. Ladies, I have to ask, is that a custom we should bring back? As I know a lot of you hate feet, is that something we should do? Could you imagine? That's, that's uncovering the feet, a marriage proposal. Now, this is taken as a euphemism, and I'm going to explain that in a minute. Um, to a whole other level. 
But she's advised to do this, and Ruth does it. Uncover his feet. Folks, a lot of people believe uncovering his feet is a sexual encounter, but it is not in this story. This is not a sexual encounter, as some believe. It was a marriage proposal. Ruth was proposing marriage. And this act is not a desperation, right? When she says, spread your garment over me or spread your wings over me, this custom is all about marriage proposal. And in that, we got to understand that it's not a desperate act on Ruth's part. It's not. It's not even survival. They were doing well. Ruth had proven herself worthy, and we'll find out how worthy as we go along in the story, and they were doing well. And Boaz wasn't going to stop being kind. Boaz would continue. So this wasn't about survival or desperation. This was about the long term, the long term. So she wants rest. She wants wellness. Isn't that what we want too? Don't we want restness and wellness? And we don't want it in the short term, do we? We want it in the long term. When we came to know Christ, we didn't say, Jesus, I'd like to follow you for a year and give it a shot. And then I may back off for a couple years when I'm good. And then if I need you again, I'll come back. I'd like to set these short-term goals with you. I'd like to have a short-term. No. When we get married, it's long-term. When we invest in a house, for most of us, it's long-term. We make these commitments, and we follow through in them, and that's what Naomi wants for Ruth. It's long-term. We do the same thing with Jesus Christ. God, I want you forever. And he says, yes, I have you forever, eternally. So it's the long-term. But what does Ruth say to all this? In complete loyalty to Naomi and in complete loyalty to the custom of the Israelites, this crazy custom, she says, what? I will do what you say. All that you say, I'm going to do it. Now, I find that to be courageous. And again, it's, it shows her loyalty. Because what's happening here is they are winnowing barley. Now, let me explain the threshing floor, because we've heard the threshing floor in the Old Testament too. It's, it's very scriptural, this place. It's a very hard, compact surface, good size, round as the sanctuary right here in the middle. And what they would do is they would process this barley against this hard, hard floor. They could use animals. They could use just their own strength. But what happened was they separated the grain from the useless straw and chaff. The chaff would blow away in that evening breeze. That's kind of why they did it at this time. It would blow away in the breeze, and they would remove the useless straw, leaving the barley. And the whole purpose was just to expose and collect the most valuable part of the crop. That was the point of the threshing floor. But let me compare Boaz's threshing floor with that in the pagan world. Because you know, pagans also practiced the threshing floor as well. This is where they would winnow their barley. Um, it was a very celebratory event, the harvest, where we reap what we sown, basically. It was celebratory. So there was eating, drinking. And when I say drinking, we were leading towards drunkenness. It was heavy, heavy drinking as they celebrated. It was a very paganistic type of ritual that they would follow. Because what would drink, drunkenness lead to? Immorality. Immorality. And 
I'm trying to explain to you that Boaz's threshing floor was not like that of the pagan world. Ruth was not stepping into a prostitution ring, if you will. The pagans, yes, would eat and drink until they were merry. Uh, the drunkenness would lead to prostitutes and immorality. It was, very, it was a huge party on this threshing floor. But Boaz, true to character, uh, this was not the case with his encounter between himself and Ruth. It was not the case. Uncovering of the feet, yes, it is a euphemism for exposing the sexual organs. It is, but not in the context and the character of these two people. So, Ruth does as she's told. Her mother-in-law commanded her to do this. She did it. She went down to the threshing floor. She laid next to him. She uncovered his feet. And at midnight, Boaz woke up, and he was startled. Thank you, Boaz, for being startled. That's a good sign. He was startled to find a woman laying at his feet. Now, this could have been why she uncovered his feet. Here's a part of this custom. This could be the possibility. Uncovering the feet led his feet to get cold, agitated, irritated, and he woke up from it. Very well could have been. It also could have been where she uncovered his feet, so that piece of garment was used to cover over part of her, which was and signified a marriage proposal. Everybody, look at verse 9. We're in chapter 3. Look at verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He says, who are you? This tells us something wonderful about Boaz. He did not lay down with anybody. He wasn't laying down with a prostitute. He wasn't celebrating as the pagans do. No, he was startled. Who is near me? He had no idea. So he didn't lay with anyone else. And after identifying herself, I'm Ruth, she immediately stated her purpose for this encounter. Spread your wings over your servant. Now, Boaz said this very thing in Ruth 2, chapter 12. We talked about it last week. Let me go over it. In Ruth 2, 12, it said he was talking about the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This was the marriage proposal. Another way of stating this is to spread the corner of your robe over me or to spread the corner of your garment over me, symbolic of the marriage commitment. In answer to Boaz's prayer to Ruth to find refuge under God's wings in verse 12 of chapter 2, Boaz becomes part of the answer. Boaz becomes part of this answer as Ruth asks him to spread his wings over her. So Boaz replies with these words, may you be blessed. Once again, you can see the loving kindness directed towards this woman. May you be blessed. Ruth's first kindness was to Naomi, and they knew that. He heard the message. They all knew what Ruth had done for Naomi and was continuing to do. But this second kindness, this last kindness, it's directed towards Boaz because Ruth could have easily gone after a younger man. Easily, but she chose to pursue Boaz in loyalty to Naomi. 
So spread your wings over your servant. Boaz said this exact thing again in uh, the earlier text, but he was saying it then in the context of protection. Remember we talked about how mothers protect their babies, and we're talk- we talked about how a mother bird will protect her young. Here it is in the context now of an intimate relationship as in marriage, because marriage is protection. It is wellness. It is rest. That's what marriage provides. So Boaz is what we call a kinsman redeemer. Not the closest in line, but still, he was a redeemer. So Boaz states that he will do as she asks because he, along with the rest of the town, knows what? That she is a worthy woman. Word has gotten around, and her reputation, her character, stands the test, again, of what she declared in that very first chapter, that she would never leave Naomi. So let's talk about what a kinsman redeemer is real quick, because this is going to point directly to our Lord and Savior. Boaz wanted to reassure Ruth that one way or another, right, uh, her and Naomi would be redeemed, because Naomi is part of this as well. A kinsman redeemer was a male relative uh, who was both privileged and responsible to act on behalf of another relative who found themselves in great need or in danger or trouble, all kinds of trouble. So this is a person who could redeem these people. It was a rescuer. It was a deliverer uh, who could redeem property, or even a person. And in this story, folks, both women are left without money, and they are left without a protector. Again, a very dangerous place to be was a widow in ancient times. Very dangerous. So, if a son was born to the kinsman who redeemed uh, somebody, right, or a property, that land purchased would revert to the son, and it remained in that family. The kinsman would lose what he bought. He would lose his investment because it would go to that son. And he'd still have to take care of another family. So it was a big deal. So for the one man, we'll find in the story, the cost was too high. It's just too high. I'll explain that in a second. But for Boaz, uh, well, his generosity and his kindness were stronger than the financial loss that he'd suffer. He accepted this. So, Boaz in the story goes on to say that there is one nearer than I, talking about being a kinsman redeemer, there's one nearer than I in relation to you. So, remain here tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, then so be it. But if he doesn't, as the Lord lives, I will do it. He was giving Ruth absolute assurance that she would be redeemed one way or another. So she laid at his feet until morning, at his feet. She got up, and before anyone knew that she had came to the threshing floor, she left. But here's the thing. I'm sure it was to avoid the gossip, right? I'm sure it was to avoid the wrong assumptions. Again, this is these two people trying to live up to the character that they were presenting. And she got up and left, but before she left, 
Boaz did something wonderful. He loaded up her garment with even more barley. Now, this was further demonstrating his sincerity, okay, his sincerity in the proposal. And Naomi would have understood this loaded up garment with barley that she was carrying. And she would see that, oh yeah, this is good news. This is good news. So the two of them waited, and they waited to hear the outcome of this matter. Okay? If he will not redeem you, I will. He had to take this matter to the closer relative. He had to bring this matter before the elders. So it was going to need to be discussed. So here's what happens. Boaz, true to his word, the next morning heads to the city gates, and he meets the closer redeemer in the family at that gate along with the elders of the city. This is where business was done. The city gates is where it all happened. This is where they got together, and they talked about the business of Ruth and what was being prosed about this, what we call a leveret marriage, and I'll explain that in a minute. So Boaz was true to what he said. The first redeemer, he was happy to buy the land before he knew about Ruth. He was happy to buy the land. Yeah, that's a great investment. I would love to further my kids' inheritance. I'll buy it. But after finding out that there was a leveret marriage, a marriage with Ruth attached to the purchase, he backed out fearing his own loss, fearing his own inheritance, meaning he was worried about the dividing up of his children. Because you're bringing somebody else in who actually belongs to another family, and now I have to divide my inheritance up even more? I'm going to back out. You can have it. You can have it. So this redemption was passed on to Boaz, and he bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, her dead husband, and her two sons that had passed, Malin and Killian. He took care of it. And in doing so, he would perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So the matter was settled, Boaz received the elders' blessings, and that was the end of the discussion. That was the end of it. So let me talk to you about a leveret marriage. A leveret marriage is where an unmarried brother would marry the wife of a brother who died in order to carry on the line, uh, the family name and the line for the dead. You didn't have kids with them, so you'll have a kid with me and we'll carry on the dead father's name. We'll carry on this family line. So the first son produced became the legal descendant of the dead husband. Boaz was not bound by leveret marriage, nor was this other unnamed relative. They weren't bound by it. This is, something, uh, this is not something that they had to do at all because he was not a brother. He was a relative, not even the closest one, not even the closest one. He chose to marry Ruth. So Boaz became Ruth's redeemer, which foreshadows Jesus Christ as our redeemer. See, they, for the long term, for the long haul, had a great need and were in trouble, and Boaz redeemed them. Jesus, like the foreshadowment of Boaz, has redeemed us. We had a great need that could not be met either. We needed rest. We needed wellness. We needed the long term, and only our Redeemer had the power to save our lives. We could not. And did He? Yes, He did. He did. Look at Ruth chapter 4, guys. I want you to jump down to verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, 
And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel, which it will be. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The dame, he took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, Oh, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, Ruth was unable to bear Malin, the the brother who died, a son in their marriage. She never conceived. But here we see through the union of Boaz and Ruth that God blesses them both with a son. Now, let's talk about Obed. It's all part of this story. Not only was Ruth's future secure, But now Naomi would also have a comforter into her old age. This is how it worked. Her grandson Obed would provide for her in the years to come. He was a family redeemer, even for this older lady. And the point about Ruth is really driven home here. I don't know if you picked up on that. Naomi could not bring back her husband or sons. She could not do that. She could not have any more. Nope. But she had Ruth. She had Ruth. And the women said that Ruth was worth more than what? Seven sons. Folks, you have to understand the, the ginormousness of this. Is that a word? I don't even know. This is a huge accolade to be said in the ancient world that a daughter-in-law is worth more than seven sons, because we know what seven sons can produce. Obed was an absolute blessing. Naomi was being praised because this blessing was redemption for her, just as Boaz was redemption for Ruth. So, jump down to verse uh, chapter 4. Look at 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is a genealogy. You can find Boaz in the Matthew account genealogy as well as the Luke. The Leveret father is not mentioned. God is blessing Boaz, and there's purpose because he is providing and protecting this very sacred family line. So, everybody named here is important. By the way, if you don't remember Perez, Perez came from a Judah and Tamar when Tamar tricked him. And that was basically a leveret marriage because he wouldn't allow her to, uh, uh, to uh, any of the, uh, the last brother, because the other two had died, if you remember the story, to come into her and to conceive. So she had to trick him. So Prez, it starts with, because Prez is in the line of the Messiah. So it gives us this awesome genealogy, and every name would have been known by the Israelite people, especially in that community. So of course this story concludes with a genealogy, lining up Obed to a very important family line. Now again, I'm going to say it, because this is important. I said it last week too. This reveals the providential protection of this line, and that God was pursuing 
Please hear this. God was pursuing much bigger plans than just bringing two wonderful and worthy people together. It was much bigger than that. His plans were much larger than just restoring the emptiness of Naomi. Much bigger. The story, right, their story becomes a much bigger story, and that was in the plan to provide for our ultimate Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This is the line that the Messiah will come through. So, yes, Obed was an important part to this, being the grandfather of David, this shepherd boy, David the king, David after a, a man after God's own heart. It was a big, big deal. So we have the genealogy. We have three different accounts, and Boaz is listed in all three. But I have to now, we have to move our focus to Naomi for a second. In the opening chapter, we have Naomi who is our central figure, our central figure. She is also the central figure as we close, okay? So the emptiness that Naomi was experiencing Uh, because of her loss, is now replaced by the fullness of the birth of Obed. In the birth of Obed, her joy, her her contentment, her her loss is replaced by being made whole, being made full, okay? Uh, This, her bitterness, remember she was a bitter woman? Her bitterness is turned to joy. See, this is joy to look after this child, just as it was when she looked after her own children. This brought her joy. Because of the kindness of Boaz, because of his kindness, this child would be regarded as Elimelech's and Naomi's grandson. The name would not die. His property would have an heir, and Naomi would have a protector. That's what happened in this marriage. Not forgetting Ruth, who was better than having seven sons. And look, looking to Ruth's determination, right, to follow Naomi. You've got to consider her declaration she made, the, the confession, the, the vows that she made. Um, she made it in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. In fact, remember last week we left it up on the screen the whole time because I wanted us to really grasp it. In making all that, we see this unique relationship had far reaching consequences beyond anything either of them could have guessed. When she made that declaration to follow and never leave and to die where she dies, I'll go where you go. Your God's my God. Your people's my people. I'm never leaving you. When she made that, she had no idea of the far reaching consequences. Only God knew this. So Boaz's prayer for Ruth was answered in the most spectacular way. All three benefited in this story. All three. So like their story, ours too reveals the ongoing, saving, redemptive work of God. Looking back to the promises made to Abraham, if you can, look back all the way to Abraham. Looking back to those promises, looking at how God achieved His purposes from generation to generation, from century to century, always keeping in line faithfulness, promises, purposes, He never failed. He never failed. This reveals His character, too. It reveals His character when we look at a story like this because we say, well, 
Why would God fail me now if He's never failed ever, if He's never failed anyone? Well, why would God keep this promise to me? Because He's kept His promises since the beginning of time. His purposes will be achieved, and we are part of the story. You know, in His story, there are great names that appear, like I just mentioned. There's great names. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We know these men, don't we? Moses, Joshua. These are great names. David, I mentioned, King David. These are huge biblical names. And the list can go on and on. You know that. But Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, just these three simple people, illustrate a wonderful truth for us. In the entirety of these story, these four simple chapters, we are brought into something wonderful, an illustration, an illustration. Let me explain it. That greatness of a Christian life, right, the life of a follower of God, um, the life of one who worships and lives for the one true God. If that's you, I pray it is. All of that greatness, just like Ruth, reveals the character of the living God. It reflects the love and character of the living God. A life that is lived for God, worshiping God, loving God, that kind of life reflects His love and His character in our lives. Just like Ruth's love for Naomi reflects God's love. Just like the mother to a child, her love for her child reflects the love of God. Just like Boaz's love for Ruth reflects God's love in this story. All three of them, it's reflective of the character and love of God if you really look at this story. And here's why, and this is the heart of the matter. Because God's steadfast love for those of us who have put our trust in Him, His steadfast love calls us to respond in the same kind of love. I'll say it again because this is an uh uh-oh moment. God's steadfast love for us, for those who believe and put their trust in Him, in that love, we are called to respond in the same kind of love to another. We cannot get around this. There is no way to get around this, folks. No loophole. He calls us to respond in love as He has loved us. So when one's life reflects the true greatness of God, right, steadfast and incredible love, steadfast and incredible love, that life is responding to or in love to another by the very love that God is pouring out on them. So what He's pouring out on you is to be poured out onto another. And that's what we're seeing in this story. If you're scared of that, I need to tell you something. God has you. His commitment, His loyalty, and His devotion to you, they have no competition. He has you. Ruth's love for Naomi, by the way, cannot compare to God's love for you. Naomi's love for Obed cannot compare to God's love for you. Ruth's love for Boaz, Boaz loves Ruth, cannot compare. Why? Because nothing can compare to the love of God that he has for you. His grip is strong. 
His grip is strong. God gives each one of his children an eternal, eternal excuse me, assurance of his care for them, an eternal grip, if you will. The things and people of this world cannot have you. They can't have you anymore. We are now children of grace because of our Redeemer. Our great trouble, our great need has been taken care of in Jesus Christ. Our Redeemer has saved us. This reality gives the Christian believer peace of mind, and this story of Ruth illustrates this truth all the more. It's a beautiful illustration of God's love. I've got to share this with you. There were two Christian men. Two Christian men uh, differed on the question of the believer's safety in Christ. Yes, people argue about this stuff. I know. But they were arguing about the believer's safety in Christ, and they were discussing this question with each other. One of the brethren said this, I tell you, a child of God is safe only so long as he stays in the lifeboat. That's the only way a child of God can be safe, stay in the lifeboat, because he can jump out, he can fall out, and if he does, he is lost. I don't believe that for a second. I don't think you do either. The other man replied to this. He said, well, you remind me of, well, a situation recently that happened. Uh, In my own life, I took my son out with me in a boat, and I realized, as he did not, the danger of his falling out of the boat into the water, or even him jumping out of the boat into the water. So what I did is I sat with him all the time, and all the time I held him fast so he could neither fall out nor jump out of the boat. The other man said, he could have wiggled out of his coat and still gone over in spite of what you were doing. And the other man said, oh, no, no. You you misunderstood me if you supposed I was holding his coat. I was holding him. I was holding him. Do you understand that your heavenly Father is holding you tightly, that he has a grip on your life, your very being? Your safety as a believer in Christ is assured, just like Naomi's life. Her safety and wellness would be assured. Ruth's life Her safety and wellness would be assured, and yes, Boaz's as well. We can see the work of God in this. Do you see the grip of this story? Do you see God's grip on Ruth and Naomi? I see it. It screams out to me. It screams out to me. You know, there was another man who had a conversation with a circus trapeze artist. You know, those people that do the crazy stuff in the air. And with this conversation, they brought up this, the net, And the performer admitted, yeah, hey, the net's there so we don't break our necks and our backs. I mean, that's an easy thing to realize. But he said this, and this is profound. He added this, and this is why I bring it up. He said this, the net also keeps us from falling. What? The net keeps us from falling. Imagine there is no net. We would be so nervous. We'd be so distracted. We'd be so focused on not falling that we'd be more likely to miss our steps or miss our grips and fall because we'd be worried that there's no net. If there wasn't a net, we would not dare to do some of the things that we do, the crazy spins and turns. We would not want to do that because daring to do that could make us fall. But thanks to the net, we dare to do them. See, we have security in God, folks. His grip We have security in God's. When we are sure in his arms, when we are sure that he is holding on to us in his steadfast love, guess what? We dare to attempt big things for him. We dare to be holy. 
We dare to live a life worthy of the gospel. We dare to be obedient. We dare because we know that the eternal arms of God will hold us if we fall. That is how tight his grip is. That is the love of a God who is fully committed, who is fully loyal, and who is fully devoted to his children. Boaz illustrates this so well. Ruth illustrates this so well. And like Naomi, please hear me, and like Naomi, we all here today are on the receiving end of this kind of love. We're on the receiving end of this love. Therefore, like this beautiful story, we have to realize that God's work is continuing in our lives. Our part of the story is part of the much bigger story. God has got you, just like he had Ruth. We need to dare to do big things for our God. He is our safety. He is our security. He is the most committed and loyal and devoted God that we could ever be held by. And that's what I want for us today, to realize in this story of Ruth that God has got you. He's got you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. Lord, this is a message for a Christian, whether they're in, stepped into the faith for, faith for three days, Lord, or been in the faith for 90 years. This is a message, Father, that we need to hold dearly to. We live in a world that will present a whole nother gospel. We live in a world that will present a lie and deception that we are not held, that none of this is real. It's not genuine. But Father God, you convict us. You allow us to, to dive into your word and through your spirit, Father, we see the beauty in this, these four simple chapters. We see the beauty of your hands and your work in each of these lives. We see the saving grace. We see the redemption, Father. We see the love and care for these people because of your work, because of your providence, because of your purposes, your promises, Lord, that you continue from generation to generation to generation all the way to right here and right now. Father, we're part of the story as well. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Redeemer. We are so grateful for our Redeemer. Father, let us live knowing that our Redeemer is our net, knowing that our Redeemer has gripped our person and is holding on to us tightly. And no matter where that boat takes us, no matter how dangerous the rapids or of that boat flipping, Father God, you've got us. Help us realize that in our Christian walk. Because, Father, that's the true greatness of reflecting your love and your character is our lives, living our lives out for you in a way that's worthy of the gospel, in a way that reflects who you are, in a way that presents our Lord and Savior in our lives. That's what we want. That's my prayer today, Lord, for your flock here. That's my prayer, Father, that we live out how committed you are to us, that we're able to live out how loyal you are, and that we're able to live out how selflessly devoted you are. That's my prayer, Lord. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.